Okay, good morning, everybody. Welcome and thank you for joining us at uh, this really fun roundtable discussion today to both talk about and, of course, in a measure, celebrate uh, the new book edited by Serena Higgins, The Inklings, and King Arthur. And uh, uh, I've been really excited about, you know, sort of watching this project unfold from when it was uh, it's just sort of early. Uh, discussions and an idea uh, by Serena to, to hearing as this has progressed and, uh, and, it, and it is so exciting to see it come out and what a wonderful accomplishment and what a wonderful success uh, the volume is. Um, I let me introduce my guests here to begin. Of course, we have three contributors, starting, of course, as I've mentioned, with Serena Higgins, the editor uh, of the volume. Uh, Serena, of course, uh, is the chair of the Department of Language and Literature uh, here at Signum University, and she is also does many other things there as well. Uh, she is also studying for her PhD at Baylor University. Um, we are also joined by Brenton Dickison, who uh, works also, teaches with us uh, at Signum University, and is also adjunct professor in theology at Maritime Christian uh, College. Um, and but you have a lot of titles too, right? Also, Sessional Professor at the Center for the Study of Christianity and Culture at the University of Prince Edward Island. Uh, lots of lots of other things going on. Brenton, thank you for joining us there from, uh, from Canada. And then uh, Malcolm Geich, very, uh, uh, very honored to have you with us today. Uh, okay. Malcolm, Malcolm is, the, is, a, is, is a poet, priest, uh, inkling scholar, and rock and roller. Uh, he is, uh, uh, we are very, very glad uh, to have you with us. Of course, as I was just joking with him before we started, he has uh, published so many books and does so many different variety of things. It is almost impossible uh, to summarize him very, uh, very briefly, but uh, I, 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 I encourage you to look at his full bio uh, as it appears on the, 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 the website for the, the, the webpage for this event. Um, so I would like to to just kind of start off with general, you know, Serena, with some general questions for you to just kind of talk about the book. Um, you know, this book has been in development for a long time. I know the first call for papers went out in 2014, but I know, you know, sort of thoughts and discussion and planning went on, uh, you know, sort of before there. Could you just kind of talk about uh, first how this book kind of came to be? And then secondly, um, when and how this book uh, got so completely out of control? I mean, this book became such a massive and uh, uh, and 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 inspiringly ambitious thing that it has uh, that it has eventually become. Sure, thank you. Well, as most of you know, Tolkien's work, *The Fall of Arthur*, was published in the spring of 2013. Before this, we knew that some lines existed of his fragmentary Arthurian poem, but we didn't realize how big it was and how much material really existed. So this came out and this is a sizable poem. It's got several cantos. It's a really kind of large scale revisioning of the Arthurian material from Tolkien's particular um, sort of Germanic perspective. Mm -hmm. So first of all, this showed that each of the major inklings, which we might talk later about what that means, but each of the major inklings had some sizable Arthurian works. So right away, that just meant that here's this scholarly topic that no one has studied before. Obviously, it's an important theme. But secondly, there was some interesting material that Christopher Tolkien discusses in the notes to the book that his father considered making a connection between his Arthurian work and his Elvish legendarium. Now we have to be careful there because Tolkien abandoned this link, but he at least considered having Lancelot be this kind of Erendil figure 
that goes off to these magical islands in the West. So it showed me that not only did Tolkien, as well as Lewis Williams and Barfield, write Arthurian stuff, but he saw it as being intimately in interconnected in this, this larger world. So that leads to overlaps with the ways that all of them envision, envision these journeys into the West and immortality and spiritual quest, um, and things like that. So that's that's how it got started. And Brenton, I think it might be your fault because I think we were talking and you were like, somebody needs to edit a collection on this. <laughs> somebody. <laughs> so I think that might be your responsibility. Now, as to why it got so out of control and turned out to be so big, 566 pages. Um, well, 566 big pages too. These, these, this is not a little pocketbook. Yeah. yeah, 20 pages, yeah. Full book. Um, there are two reasons that it, it got so large. One was simply that we received so many good proposals, um, so many excellent paper proposals that we really needed to include a lot of them. But secondly, from the beginning, I knew that I wanted this book to really push Inkling's studies forward from a theoretical perspective. I wanted us to consider angles that have not always been taken in inkling studies so i knew i wanted gender studies and post-colonial um, studies intertextuality um, all these different angles some eco-critical perspectives so i wanted all of these to be included and so that meant bringing in a lot of different voices so we have emerging scholars in this book as well as really established and well-known people like malcolm himself right right yeah, that's great. Now, it, it sort of actually thinking about some of those different, I, I noticed that the organization of your book seem, you know, seems to reflect some of those different uh, uh, approaches and theoretical approaches that you were thinking about there too, um, which seems an interesting choice, right? One would assume a book called Inklings and I mean, what I would assume looking at the table of contents is that I would find like, Here's the, or I would find what I normally find in Inkling's books, right? Here's the Tolkien section. Here's the C.S. Lewis section. Here's the Charles Williams section and the, and the, the Owen Barfield section, maybe. <laughs> if we're like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Sort of the footnotes on Owen Barfield. Um, but um, but anyway, but obviously you, you didn't take that approach in organizing it and thinking it through. Um, so were you following, wanting to, to sort of emphasize the, the theoretical development in that way? Kind of, kind of. Um, I'll comment on this and then I think each of the other gentlemen will have some good thoughts on this. So for those who don't have a book in front of you, the first section is texts and intertexts. Then we have histories past, histories present, geographies of gender, and cartographies of the spirit. The organization was um, a difficult decision. I considered just doing the, what you said, the sort of obvious by author. I considered doing a kind of chronological by when each of their texts was written or published, but that's difficult because some of them span uh, decades. Um, I considered a bunch of different approaches. This one does emphasize the theoretical perspective, but it also emphasizes sort of the different ways you can approach these Arthur Arthurian texts. What I did not want was I did not want this to just be a source and adaptation work. I didn't want it to be like, here's how Williams adapts Mallory. Here's how Lewis adapts Chrétien, that kind of thing. Um, because, and Malcolm, you can address this, because that would sort of emphasize the Inklings as backwards looking. Yeah. And we wanted to emphasize them as in their moment and forward looking. So did you want to say something about that, Malcolm? Yeah, yes, I, I'd like to. Um... I think there's generally in, in Inkling's scholarship now, we were talking about Ralph Wood's book earlier, but a realization that to some degree, 
sort of mainstream kind of secular literary criticism, not quite sure what to do with these oddly successful authors who didn't seem to fit in with a sort of skeptical high modernist program was to kind of put them in a little box, you know, where you just say, well, they're, they're nostalgic people who sort of uh, drink frothy beer and, and, and are interested in an idealized middle ages. And, uh, and uh, of course that won't do. Um, not least because if we see that one of the main drivers of the big shift and break between 19th and 20th century writing and the whole modernist project and the sense of having fragments that you must put together again, that event is the Great War. And although we're, we were all brought up to see, you know, the new high modernist literature, the Virginia Woolf's and the Bloomsbury Group and Joyce and Beckett and Elliot as representing something that had to be done in a new way after the trauma of the war. Actually, none of them were traumatized war writers at all. <laughs> On the other hand, Lewis and Tolkien, you know, were. And I think, you know, Tom Shippey and now others have put them in that context. Then I think it emerged very clearly that they were completely familiar with what one might call, you know, the masters of skepticism or the hermeneutics of suspicion. That it wasn't that they'd ignored, you know, Marx and Freud and Nietzsche and the other people who would underlie it. They'd engaged with them, just as they'd engaged with the horrors of war. But what they came up with was not, as it were, a capitulation to that reductio, mm. but an attempt to re-envision in this new and broken context uh, a sense of the transcendent and the numinous, and to question how one might have a proper narrative, a proper quest, a real uh, ennobling, and ultimately, you know, in their words, a remythologizing, uh, a mythopoetic vision. And the context to read that in is not nostalgia for a golden age, I think, but prophecy for the age we're in, a kind of prophecy, not in the sense of predicting the future, although they are concerned with some, I mean, Lewis in particularly, in, in right. the, say, the abolition of man, which if you like, is the prose theoretical yeah. version of what he's working out partly through the figure of Merlin in, in, in that hideous strength. They do look at the future, but they're prophetic in the sense that they're trying to restore lost vision. And I think seeing them as speaking as our contemporaries into our contemporary situation, but with great mythopoeic resources that other writers have ignored at their disposal is a much better way of seeing them than simply like as though they were rehashing Tennyson and William Morris. Right. right. Absolutely. Serena, I wanted to follow up, actually. We had a, we, we had a really great question uh, from Timothy Fisher, who, who is wondering if you could briefly characterize the different sections as, you know, the, the, the titles of those sections are, are, are not totally transparent to people who haven't read it. So could you talk a little bit, a, a little bit more about what the, the section titles indicate? Absolutely, sure. And um, actually, Brenton, do you want to do the first one? Since your chapter kind of um, gave rise, the first section is called texts and intertexts. I mean, I start by giving a chapter that's sort of an overview, like, here's what each of the Inklings wrote in Arthuriana. But then, right. yeah, Brenton, why don't you take it from there? Yeah, I actually, I, I, and I would I would recommend if, if, if you can get a, your hands on this, to, uh, Serena's chapter actually does give you a, a picture uh, of the it's a bit of a landscape piece. And actually, I think geography, cartography, that part of the adventure runs as a metaphor throughout, throughout the text. If you could possibly have something that links the, the diversity that exists here, that's one of the themes that kind of sits, even though none of the inklings or three heads are 
very geographical in the way that they're like they're all landscape artists in their own work but not as much in their arthurian poetry and prose so so that's kind of interesting the, the text and intertext is is the one where i spend my time kind of hanging out actually it uh it it's uh i mean my piece looks backwards and and forwards as literature kind of moves fluidly between uh the different pieces and there is this is where we do look at the sources but not trapping them in the way that serena um talked about or the way that malcolm talked about like they're not um they're living texts themselves within the text that they that Absolutely. are take, taken up yeah and then um and and then we get uh the um and that's done uh, sort of thematically Arthurian Avalon. And then we've got uh, Chris Gardner, um, who's a who's a, an American in China, musician in China. And he uh, he takes it kind of into that mythological geography as, as a metaphor. So I think I think it's kind of a cool section. I, I, I don't think we're competing, are we? We don't have to win people to the section. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so in that sense, it's a, it's a fairly large introduction to a to a text, um, and works pretty well as a, as a textbook itself on on the topic. I think, but and then there's these individual pieces. I think you're going to turn to Serena. Yeah, yeah, and um, Tim points out that so each section sort of begins with an overview chapter that gives the landscape of each section too. So Holly Ordway starts out that section with yeah. the only piece that does deal with the Arthurian sources. Right, yeah. um, sort of who were the works that came before. So the next section then is called History's Past. And that one is the only section that deals with the question of was there an historical Arthur? Or even more interestingly, why does that matter? What, you know, whether our authors were thinking about an historical Arthur or not. And then the other two chapters in there are dealing with ways of redoing history, sort of new approaches to historiography. Then we have History's Present, which is putting them right in their modernist context. So we have an overview chapter about um, scientific reductionism and some other concepts that were going down in the Inklings time, how they were interacting. And then we get the most interaction with the wars, the two world wars in that section. Then the geographies of gender. So that's, that's I think that's a really strong section where we deal with in, issues of gender and sexuality, especially in Tolkien, um, well, in, in Tolkien, Williams and C.S. Lewis there. And we end with the ambiguously titled Cartographies of the Spirit. Um, these are more theological questions. We have some George MacDonald in here as well to give some background, but these are more questions of where does the Holy Grail um, fit into each, of these, into each of these authors' works. Right, interesting, interesting. Um, uh, well, Brenton, following up a little bit on what you were talking about, about you know the intertextuality uh, section as well. Just, I would lo love to hear a little bit more about your own uh, your own essay and uh, you know sort of the, the the approach that you were taking there. Yeah, what I what's, uh, I mean, Serena talked about wanting a theoretical approach, and and my I don't know that I knew that Serena when when you did the call for papers, but my whole approach, my whole pitch, I think it was just a theoretical exploration using data from that hideous strength to to test out theory, and so what. I looked at was the theory of intertextuality itself. Um, and this was just a hot kind of 1960s, that whole French school, you know, all the lit scholars that we are terrified to read and that we keep struggling with. And we're not, we're not even certain today that they knew what they were talking about, let alone us. Uh, but, one, but one of them, um, uh, Gerard Jeanette is, is sort of like, he's sort of like an 
anatomical scholar. He's just really good at, he created the an, an anatomy of the inner text of how texts kind of weave in and out. And he did that using metaphors. And so he used, um, well, uh, Claude Lévi-Strauss used the, the bricolure, which is like a, we don't have the word in English, but um, uh, the odd job man is kind of the English translation, someone who just grabs the things that are kind of kicking around and puts them together into a piece. And uh, um, we actually get the art project of bricolage comes out of that. And then, um, which is I think now mostly what my wife does a kindergarten teacher. Uh, it's part of her <laughs> art world. And, uh, but he also used uh, pastiche uh, as a positive thing, which is used, I think, negatively of the Inklings as a whole in their Arthuriad in some, and Humphrey Carpenter uses it particularly of C.S. Lewis's uh, work in Narnia as a sort of a negative. And then the palimpsest, which is like, an ancient text that you can kind of see the layers of the previous text. If the text has been washed, you can still see remnants of the previous text. And today we've got a lot of um, really cool tools to find that out. Before those tools were invented, we just had the basic shadowing of the text through a text. And so he used these images, but it turns out C.S. Lewis used his own images in his own literary criticism. He used the images of a commune, which is kind of an interesting idea. Authors as a communal space. He used the, the master painter's shop. I remember being at, uh, at the Britain, uh, the British Museum and seeing, um, you know, a piece, uh, um, a piece by Van Gogh that wasn't finished, you know, that, that, but you could see how there were the different hands in it because it wasn't incomplete, but you could see the different painters and, and apprentices that were involved in that. Or he talks about a gardener tending, training a vine you know, waiting and watching and moving the vine as literature. And he talked about echo, and a lot of scholars talk about echo, but Lewis also talked about cathedral, how a cathedral has, you know, it's a finished thing. You walk in the door and you worship or you, you, know, you visit, uh, you know, uh, you confess, but there are generations of uh, architecture in any one cathedral space. And sometimes it's even the old stones that have been used in new ways. The architects are often invisible, uh, if completely unknown. Uh, and the, the, the effect of the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And so it's, that's kind of, so I looked at those images and I, and a lot of my text is playing with those images as Lewis uses uh, previous texts in his uh, ransom cycle. So that's a lot of the, the piece there. But one of the things that uh, um, George Jeanette did that you couldn't have predicted, I don't think in 1965 or thereabouts was he talked about hypotext and hypertext. So hypotext is the text before the hypertext comes after. So we might call the hypotext the urtext, where we're going back to. This is your your tennis and your Mallory and your Chrétien de Troyes and everybody else, right? So you've got this, and then the hypotext is what takes it up. So Tennyson takes up Mallory, Mallory takes up Chrétien, etc. And and he was that was an interesting thing, but I found that too static of a a move to look at the Inklings and Lewis in particular, and and so what I suggested was actually the way we use hyperlink today gives us a really effective way to transform the imagery of Gerard Jeanette. So we use you know when we talk about a hyperlink, we put this like a, a word or an image, and and we click on that word or image, and then all of a sudden not just another word or image, or a, but a whole a whole page or a whole website or a whole literary or visual experience pops up behind. And I suggested in my article that uh, Lewis, when you when you click on any of his images, you don't just get a definition or an echo, but you actually get the entire world is kind of sucked up into that. Um, so just to, to use 
two examples in that hideous strength. Um, they're, they're famous and infamous examples. Uh, one is that Lewis, well, he leaves Barfield on a stool and yeah, you know, we get a little Barfield, but so you get his whole philosophy. So you have to know his whole philosophy, but um, Williams, when, whenever Logris is used in um, that hideous strength, I really think that's, that's um, we're meant to see that as Charles Williams Logris in a lot of ways and the Arthurian and this full kind of series of worlds are, are sucked up in the single phrase. And that's of stuff that was uh, by 19, it wasn't complete, but a lot of it that, we had was written at that point. And then, um, but he also uses Numenor, spells it wrong, um, uh, infam infamously. And, uh, and and really intriguing, when, when you click on Numenor in your mind in that hideous strength, you're actually sent back to the Ant Atlantean background right. uh, in behind the text. And so that you're meant to kind of take in that entire mythology just with a single breath of air from the Atlantean world in that hideous strength. And, and, and that wasn't even complete. I mean, it wasn't even near complete in 1944 when Lewis, 43, 44, when Lewis was writing. I mean, it was generation, you know, a decade before anybody saw it and a generation before we got a bunch of it. And just four years ago before we got the Arthurian bit. So I think that's a, um, a I mean, that's what I was playing with. Lewis brings together with these little hypertexts, he brings together whole worlds, pulling them together at the elbows where they have the most connective possibilities and i think that's what makes him a, a really interesting intertextual uh, writer yeah i really like that metaphor of the hyperlink uh you know and actually i think that your the the numenor example is a particularly interesting one because the of the multiple levels that lie behind it right i mean as you say you you, you mentally click on numenor and you get this whole you know so many things associated with it but of course within that there are links to Atlantis, right? And then you click on Atlantis and you get like a, you know, a whole new layer of things and all of this stuff, you know, comes back and is being woven in just in those, what, like three sentences or so in yeah. that hideous strength, right? So, I mean, that is yeah. a really interesting way to think about the way that these ideas just get kind of folded in and embedded within the story, but in such a, such a really powerful and effective way. It's really interesting. Yeah. Can I, I jump in on that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Textuality front, you know, one of the things, reasons why it's such an important um, approach, such an important concept for handling um, the, way, the way the Inklings do with the Arthuriad is, is that all of the Inklings, or but particularly Lewis and Tolkien as, as medieval scholars, were completely apprised of the intertextuality of their own sources. You mentioned, right. you know, looks back to Mallory, Mallory looks back to Christopher. Almost all, I mean, it was the nature of the medieval writer, you know, even Mallory keeps on telling you the French book says, you know. Right. And yeah. that I think they got two things which actually gave them great creative freedom and possibility. The Incans got two things from their knowledge of the original sources. The first was that the original sources were many led in intertextual and happily referred to each other and, and had that those sort of doors and windows back into each other. So they knew they could do that. But the other thing, of course, is that as soon as you read these original sources, you realize that there is no absolutely standard kind of meta narrative or, or yeah, right. prime text or authorized yeah. version of this story. It does not exist. Yeah. Every mean, book. I think that's worth, why this that's why this book's important, I think. So so what you get on the one hand is a rich cluster of sources and depth and resonance that you don't have to make up for yourself because it's there. But 
the example of every great Arthurian writer before you is an example of somebody who has had complete freedom mm. to reshape the narrative in their own way, according to their own artistic vision and for their own. So, so there's no kind of, there's no slavish following of anything, but rather mm -hmm. a kind of exploring of, of possibilities. And I think that's why, partly why the Arthurian material was so attractive to them, yeah. that it actually had this extraordinary combina combination of tradition and freedom. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good interplay. Actually, I think with, if, it, I mean, I already had probably one of the longest pieces in the book. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, um, but if I were to add more, I think what I would talk about is, or or I guess where it goes. The book I have sketched out in my head is the Echo Effect in Lewis, and one of the chapters is thinking of Lewis in terms of friendship and authorship. So actually, not just you know killing the cult of originality, leaving that beside the altar, but but actually uh, coming in and, and seeing Lewis as seeing himself within that kind of round table mm. of, of Arthurian, so not just Arthurian adventurers, but a round table of Arthurian writers. Absolutely. And, yeah. yeah. And, and so, and then, I mean, Tolkien didn't always love it, right. That he was included, but I mean, I think that we see from the notion papers that there, there, even he loved that, that interplay, that, that friendship aspect to the, to the things. Serena's trying to pop in, I think. So. Yeah, yeah, Serena, I wanted to give you a chance to jump in too. Yeah, just two thoughts there. I mean, what we're what we're saying is is the way that the Inklings worked, the way that the Arthurian tradition worked, and in the way it's how this this book works as well. Mm. Um, so the Arthurian texts have always, as David says in the comments, have always been an interweaving, and there's no there's no Ur text, so we don't really get into some of the problems that adaptations often face. That adaptations are often criticized for not being faithful to their source text, so like the, like the book to movie arguments that go on. But there is no one Ur text in yeah. the Arthurian material, so this gives each author so much freedom, with the result then that each Arthurian retelling is shaped to fit its times in really beautiful ways, sometimes in terrifying ways, you know, questionable ways. They embed the prejudices of their own times, but also in um, beautiful ways that are sort of offering their times uh, a way forward. Um, and the second thing I wanted to say on that is that our book kind of works by this double click hyperlink method that Brenton's describing. Um, and this is good for different readers too. So like Brenton's chapter is pretty heady theory, but then the next chapter by Charles Hutter double clicks on just one word, Avalon. And is also a very large chapter, but it does really close readings, especially of the poetry. Some of the poems that, that you listeners may not have spent as much time with as you have with the major fictional texts. So it's a very careful, close reading of everywhere the word and the concept of Avalon occurs. And so we can see some very deep resonances among the Inklings by doing that kind of close reading. Yeah. yeah, actually, actually, I mean, and I think that's really important. This was a, a bit of a performance piece and it was built that way by Serena from the beginning. And my own chapter really just invites play. And and I, I think we can keep doing that. For example, the idea of social media, which is a big part of what we're doing with this book, the way that we're sharing it, the way that we built it, uh, you know, uh, how it moved digitally throughout the world. Now we're actually, our biggest challenge is actually physical mail to move the copies from place to place, right? <laughs> you know, it's actually moving back a generation, that's hard. But I think the idea of social media would be a really interesting way of thinking about medieval writing as a social project, right? You know, what, what do we learn today and how does that compare and contrast 
with uh, you know that 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 particular age. It's kind of a lot of fun. So, I mean, so much of this book was crowdsourced in so many different ways. I mean, just yeah. starting out by sharing the CFP, and then the fact that I have met very few of the authors in person. We've yeah. all worked at a distance, but then also, as many of you know, we did a uh, GoFundMe fundraising campaign to raise the money that we needed to pay the permissions for using quotations. And then we also had a poll that we ran on cover design. Um, we, I had over a hundred designs from many artists. And then the, the, the one who won the cover design is our own Signum student, Emily Austin. So the, the book kind of enacts this more medieval communal collaborative sort of approach rather than the romantic solitary artist starving in the garret, which works out nice for me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Good. Uh, Brenton, just one last quick follow-up on, you know, your idea of this kind of, you know, uh, both of more broadly of intertextuality and, and more specifically this sort of, you know, uh, sort of uh, hypertext and hyperlink theory um, as applied to Lewis. Do you see that applied uh, the same way or to the same extent to others of the Inklings? Or would you, would you very, you know, do you think that uh, Lewis is different from say how Tolkien approaches intertextuality or, or, or Williams, any, any thoughts about yeah. that? Yeah, I think it's it's similar in one way and different in one way. I think uh, Williams and Tolkien both so shape their interior world that that it, it moves out of the worlds that they're in conversation with. So Charles Williams Logris is is not uh, um, as much as it, it's drawn and in conversation with the past. It is a very particular kind of a thing, uh, and he has a very particular <laughs> imagination of what that is. And, and really, scholars are just kind of popping that out now. Um, it may take generations to uncover. And Tolkien, it's the complexity. And so, in that way, uh, Lewis Lewis's worlds are, are are really accessible compared with the other two authors. And so you can move into them really quickly. It's it's like taking a breath while you're in the middle of them is maybe more the challenge rather, you know, because they're moving worlds uh, in that sense. So in that way, no, no, I think, I think there's a little bit different in the way that Lewis is. But if we thought of classical and biblical texts as just two, two of the, the uh, hypotexts um, right. in that way very much. So I think that the, the very few a lot of the work on Eucharistic imagery, for example, in Tolkien is really a, a hyperlinking in of, of images that are, are um, intentionally not uh, obvious or intentionally not drawn as in, or Marian imagery, or in Charles Williams, uh, ideas of the body, or the, you know, the love of the classical world or the medieval world. So I, I think, yeah, in, in that way, we would do well to, when we see a link, um, you know, oh, there looks to be this biblical passage in one of Charles Williams' poems. I think we should say, yes, okay, let's look at that, but let's actually stop and let's see, is there an Ezekiel-like um, hole to to this? Or is there a Hebrew-like hole to the poem? Or is there a Christian-like hole to the poem? And I think that's the, the next step we need to ask. Right, right, yeah, yeah, that's great, that's great. Um, add something on Williams, yeah, Ian? Yeah. Sure. Intertextuality. Sure. <laughs> so Williams has this added layer, and I think this might go some way in the direction of your question, Tim, that you're asking about Barfield. So we'll see. Um, but so Williams has this added layer that the others don't, which is the vast, enormous hermetic tradition, the occult tradition, um, which is itself 
highly and intentionally intertextual. It's, uh, Alec Howe calls it arbitrary systems of symbolism. So the way the occult works is by saying everything is a symbol for everything else. You take any system of imagery, whether it's the zodiac, whether it's the Kabbalistic Sephirotic tree, whether it's the image of the body, whether it's a system of different virtues and um, the hermetic system maps those onto each other so that you have mm. layers almost literally like what you were saying, Brenton, that you can see the earlier system showing through the other. And then Williams makes this absolutely literally visual yeah. when he gets an artist to draw Gross. this map of the naked lady over <laughs> Europe. And then the idea that each body part is a body part and a country and a virtue and a sign of the zodiac um, and a, a place on the sephirotic tree. So those are all showing through, as it yeah. were. Um, now, Barfields is not at all um, that same that same system. It's not at all systematic like that. But it does have these other these traditions of anthroposophy and these traditions of sort of the more um, theosophical or mystical sort of sides of Christianity showing through as well. Yeah, I, I agree with that entirely. And I, I think there's some um, if you're looking for a place where, if you like, the more exoterical and well-known interleaving of the biblical passages in imagery on the one hand and the classical with that, if you like, more mystical and esoteric thing in Williams, uh, without question, it is in the, the grail itself. Um, the, the grail for him is deeply and richly informed by his occult reading, but deeply and richly informed by his Christian reading. And then it becomes, and as we, you know, we know, We've been talking about literary interconnection, the way in a sense in which one text co-inheres with or inhabits another text and each is informed by the other. But of course, an absolutely central idea to William's whole view of the world is coherence. Um, each and the other, a term he takes originally from Trinitarian theology, but which he applies to the way he thinks people are. And, and of course, um, I think it's brought out actually very well by Suzanne Bray in her chapter, but. Um, there's an absolutely magnificent passage in War in Heaven where the, 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 the archdeacon, who's this, you know, wonderful sort of um, unassuming clergyman who, who happens to find the Holy Grail in the back of a church cupboard, you know. And, uh, um, but there's a bit where he, there's a, you know, there's a massively sort of mystical moment in which you see all think all the created as a order, as it were, drawn into the Grail and all the grace coming out of it and everything. And as he, Williams goes for it in a purple prose passage. And then he says, well, of course, the archdeacon was used to this at every everyday Eucharist, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, and the palace consecrated wine is the same. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So, but one of the things I think I think um, that, that that's key there is that William's very cast of mind, the kind of spiritual training that he had as well, made him intensely aware of the way in which one thing contains many things or the way in which almost any ob everyday object can become a portal into something far greater that is behind it. And so, although he doesn't use the, the literal verbal triggers of quotation that, that Lewis does, where Lewis okay. clearly cites another text and wants the very words of the text to be the portal through, with Williams, the portal is always the, the image, or as he used to prefer to say, the figure. You know, he wrote famously the figure of Beatrice, and we know that he intended to write, but never completed the figure of Arthur. Yeah. And actually in, 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 for Williams, Arthur, Guinevere, Lancelot, but also Avalon, Logres, 
Brasiliand, the Grail itself, whilst being what they are, are all in different ways portals or containers of something beyond themselves. That's the very cast of his mind. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Containers, the very portals of light. That's right. Uh, great. Well, uh, Serena, you mentioned before when you were talking about the different sections, uh, uh, you mentioned the 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 gender section was one that that was particularly sort of uh, you know kind of grew and 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 you know was that that you were especially interested in would, would you like to talk a little bit more about that section sure thanks so much i appreciate it um so gender studies and questions of the inklings and women and of depiction of sexuality in their works is an area that's been somewhat understudied now it's not completely neglected we have some very important works uh, by Monica Hilder, Diana Glyer, um, Mary Stuart von Leeuwen, and a few others who've done some important work on the inklings and gender, but there's still space for more work. So even though we have this nice big three chapter section, um, anyone who's listening, there's still more work to do here in this area, so go for it. Um, but there are, some, there are some troubling things in the inklings' personal lives and in their work that on the surface can really appear misogynistic. Um, so some of our writers dealt with that head on. And um, I recommend to you that those chapters, the one on that hideous strength and how Arthur has sort of these two different personas. Well, the character of Ransom has these two different personas, the pen dragon, the Fisher King. And my chapter author, Benjamin Shogren, argues that these are two different ways of symbolically showing gender roles. Um, now, not the kinds of roles that individual humans are restricted to. So he's not saying that that Lewis is arguing a woman has this role and a man has that role. Rather, he's arguing that there's this dance that each individual takes on a feminine role and a masculine role in different times and in different relationships. And that there's sort of symbolically ways of figuring forward um, hierarchy and authority and things like that. So it's a chapter that I think a lot of readers would really enjoy debating with. And that would be great. Let's get those conversations started. Similarly, the one on Charles Williams deals with his troubling associations between gender and empire and of uh, sort of servitude and domination and control. That are some troubling images in his work. So that's that's a good chapter as well. But I wanted to mostly on the House Thomas's really, really strong chapter called Fair as Fay Woman and Fell Minded. And it's a source studies approach to Tolkien's Guinevere in the fall of Arthur. And Alyssa does a really magnificent job of combining close reading and source criticism to show different literary threads that Tolkien wove together to create a very strong, very complex and troubling Guinevere. It's among some of Tolkien's darker and more mature approaches to women and to sexuality. And it shows Guinevere as a very negative character, but one who has these really strong passions and desires and who makes these terrible decisions you know, to mm -hmm. sacrifice her vows and her kingdom and so forth to her desires. And ends up, Alyssa ends up comparing her to a dragon who's trying to hoard Lancelot's love and who's trying to hoard sort of her position as queen and the detriment that that has on the kingdom. And she kind of ends her chapter with these larger questions of like, now we want to relook at all the women in Tolkien's canon now that we have this additional sort of strange figure to compare to them. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, no, that's very interesting stuff. And as you say, it is uh, 
an under discussed area, uh, which I think is, is really great to see some of that opening up. And I certainly agree. I mean, there's there's no question for me. You know, I remember my first reading of The Fall of Arthur. It was Guinevere that made me like, whoa. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's really the 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 most striking uh, uh, character. Really, I think the most striking moment uh, in uh, uh, in in The Fall of Arthur. So yeah, I think that it's 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 really great uh, to see uh, Alyssa's work in there uh, on that. Malcolm, I wanted to follow up for a second. Uh, what you were talking about before about about the inklings and of course you know the way in which people have traditionally thought about the inklings and and you know sort of the argument you make for uh you know how we should be sort of reevaluating that and the follow up i wanted to ask about that in particular is what role would you see um the inklings and king arthur having with that both this book in specific and and really sort of this this line of inquiry in general how do you think that you know examining this uh, and and the way that it has been examined in the book might might help to uh, to affect people's understanding of the inklings? Okay, well, I think the most specific place to start with that, and I know Brenton's written about this as well, is if you look at that hideous strength, which is obviously very explicitly, you know, Merlin is in it. Uh, right. There's a sense in which the the Arthur Arthur in a sense is never gone away. There's always a Pendragon, and it happens to be Ransom on this occasion. Um, if you think of that book as explicitly paired, and indeed, you know, in his little preface, Lewis does explicitly pair it with the abolition of man. Right. Um, at least one major purpose of that book is to have a kind of prophetic insight into. The immediately post Second War situation of the West, the new scientific possibilities, the possibilities—you know—they always hadn't got around to genetic engineering then. But the whole question: of What do we make of ourselves? How do we define our boundaries and our values? Do we wipe everything clean? You know, there's that terrible image of the moon, as it were, as having perhaps once yes. had life and everything being wiped clean. And and do we despise even our own biological life and despise? All those big questions about which are now being discussed in what I think is referred to now as transhumanism um, are being addressed. And um, one of the issues at stake, and I think this is where Barfield's influence is very strong on the book, is everybody talks about how it's really a Charles Williams novel written by Lewis, which is true to some degree. But I think Lewis is also wrestling with everything that he's learned from Barfield. So the thrust of poetic diction, Barfield's book, um, right which is dedicated to Lewis, um, is, is that whilst we have gained some things in the progress of Western knowledge, and in particular in the scientific method, we have lost something. Typically, uh, Barfield sees as a mythological image in order to explain it. He talks about the way Odin, in order to learn how to read the runes, had to give up one eye right. in order to have that knowledge. And he says, we've kind of given up one of our eyes. So one of the things that's explored in the whole idea of Logres versus Britain is that there was what Barfield would call a more original participation, a more, if you like, a way of relating to nature and to one another, which mm -hmm. was not about the domination from outside, but about kind of kindling a wooing and speaking and uh, interlearning of wisdom from within. And that's represented that old view, if you like, that whole right. way of pre-modern way of seeing this, is brought literally into play when Merlin is revived, because Merlin sees the world like that. Right. And 
I think Lewis is genuinely ambiguous about this. So at one point, when they're discussing the history of Arthur Dimble, who's not a major character, but is an academic, says that Merlin's way of looking at things is maybe a way that we need to get back towards. And actually, Lewis says something very similar about an, a, what he calls a regenerate science in, in that hideous, in, in um, uh, The Abolition of Man. But, and this is, I think, one of the unresolved ambiguities of the book, when there's a, con when, 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 the Arthur figure, Ransom, the Pendragon, and Merton, how to solve the current crisis and the, the awful National Institute for Coordinated Experiments that's going to wreak havoc. Merlin says, let me go and renew my acquaintance. Let me walk up and down. Let me speak to the trees and the hedgerows. And, and the Arthur figure says, no, we, we can't do that anymore. And I think this is a split Lewis in love with that earlier magical way of seeing things, but also afraid, if you like, of sorcery and manipulation. And and, and so I think the book, I don't think the book finally resolves that actually, because in the end, it is a kind of astrological magic and the, the planets coming down. So it does. And I think, I think that question the book poses, how do we keep the progress we've got, understand the proper and good fruits of the science we've got, but not lose the old wisdom? Now, the baddies in that book, the, the scientists want to revive Merlin in order to manipulate nature. Dimble, if you like, and, and, and Arthur want to revive Merlin in order to learn from him, but also in order that he may deal with the evils. And that question of a poise between, if you like, a mythopoeic way of seeing things and an externally, quote unquote, objective, but sometimes reductive analytical way of seeing things are brought to confrontation in that book. Now, I don't think that confrontation is resolved. I think we see it every day in the headlines. I think we see it in the clashes that go on between the way different worldviews. I think we're seeing it more and more with globalization, where we're more and more in contact with people who have a mythopoeic vision and what are we doing to them? So, so for all the fact that it's, you know, it's set, a, involves our theory and material, I think that book is, is explicitly and consciously dealing with a fundamentally difficult modern issue, which is not yet resolved. And that actually, curiously enough, the figure of Merlin is crucial to that discussion. And if you look back at the long history of Merlin, I mean, the, I don't mean the history of Merlin, I mean, you know, how we've written about Merlin, that you're going back to, to you know, the prophecies of Merlin as, as, as sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, done alongside the Historia Regium. Actually, there have been various historic periods where we got interested in Merlin again. I mean, John Dee got interested in Merlin. Merlin seems to carry in this figure of a, an almost pre-Christian sage who nevertheless can do business with Christianity and meet Arthur at Pentecost, but who is also, if you like, in his own way, somebody who's helping us to change the world in the way that a scientist would in the richly ambiguous figure of Merlin. And I don't think that agenda is over. I mean, you know, Lewis didn't carry on with that, but I think that's an unfinished work. I think we're going to see in the future more work that engages creatively with the Arthurian stuff and takes it a little bit further in terms of where we are now in the, the scientific, uh, but also the imaginative possibilities that are open to us as a culture. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, you, um, you mentioned 
unfinished work just now, of course, thinking about that kind of interaction, you know, that the modern world is having with and through the Arthurian story, which is, I think, an interesting way to think about it. But I, it's funny because I was thinking um, ironically about the fact that many of these works that we're discussing are in fact themselves unfinished work. Lewis being exceptional as he so often was in actually finishing and publishing books compared to so many of the rest of the Inklings. Um, but um, I, it, what do you guys think? I mean, so much of the of the, the Arthurian work, many of the texts that you guys are are dealing with, uh, you know, in the in the essays in this book, are uh, are either themselves, uh, you know, unfinished or uh, or unpublished. Um, so, just how important do you think that this is? You know, thinking about that, um, you know. Uh, that bringing this stuff to light is, and how does it help us to understand some of the published yeah. works, and and how do you see that kind of moving things forward? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, and in in one way, we're kind of asking like, well, what good is it for me to publish a book on a piece that no one else can access? <laughs> can read, yeah, exactly. The one major Arthurian work by Barfield is this thing called the Quest of the Sangral that is in a restricted collection in the Bodleian, and you have to get. Special permission, you know. I, I got a letter from Owen Barfield's grandson to let me go and read this work. So, what's the good of my writing about it when nobody else can can go and read it? Well, okay. So there's a bunch of different answers to that. One is, well, I'm presenting as much as I can about that work for those of you who can't go and read this piece in the body. You know, I give a plot summary, I give an overview, I discuss the style and that sort of thing. So that's actually super useful that we're able to cover in this in this collection, lots of works that you might not be able to read all of them. So you can see these different connections, you can see these different um, themes and stylistic attempts and adaptations through reading our book. But the larger question is a, a much more interesting sort of question about how we do scholarship, right? So we kind of think that to approach an author, we have to take all of his work into account. I was recently at a fascinating T.S. Eliot symposium. There's a massive project going on right now to publish all of the unpublished um, Eliot materials. Because his, his wife resisted for years and years and years publishing all of his stuff. We've suddenly gone from some, I think it was like 3,000 pages of prose to 30,000 pages of the collected prose. So we now have a totally different picture of who T.S. Eliot was as a writer. But then this raises questions of like, well, what about something that Eliot, or say even more relevantly, Tolkien, intentionally did not publish in his lifetime? And he says is not part of his legendary, you know, maybe, maybe he even tried to destroy it and someone else had a copy. This often happens. So your question actually raises a lot more complicated questions about the way we do scholarship, the ethics of publishing material, the question of do we have to consider absolutely everything the person wrote in order to examine this one text, or can we look at a particular text in isolation? Obviously, scholars take different perspectives on that question, you know, depending on their theoretical lens. So one thing that we're doing by my publishing a, a volume of such length is we're sort of letting readers decide know well what what do they want to study they can they can read our book and then try to hunt down some of these lesser known texts they can choose which chapters and try to get a much larger vision of these um, materials by Tolkien Lewis Williams and Barfield than they've had before and it will just continue the conversation and to your earlier question too what does a good book do it it prompts other books 
Exactly. So yeah. we'll know that our collection is working if we get book reviews and articles and blog posts and other books debating with it, being furious at it, being happy with it, you know, discussing it. It'll be an ongoing conversation. So in addition to other Arthurian adaptations, we hope to see a lot more scholarship being generated from this as well. Yeah. Absolutely. You were waving a copy of um, Diana Glyer's excellent book, The Company They Keep, earlier on, and about the inkling of writers in community. And they were so, they were not only stimulated by reading each other's books to write, but you know, the famous conversation, nobody's writing the kind of books we want, we'd better write them ourselves, you know. And that notion of text as generative, as one text, as, as it were, generative another, of another text is absolutely watermarked all the way through this book, because it's about how the, the, uh, the first Arthurian texts then generated these new ones and how a lot of the ones we're looking at in that book were themselves generated by conversations and often conversations about unfinished work. So you can think about unfinished work as being problematic because how can I write about this if I don't know how it ended? Or you can think about it as being generous or generative, that, that there's a freedom there, there's a proper freedom, a playfulness in, in response. And I think in the in the English literary scene, I think this goes back to you know, a particular thing, uh, which is part of the Romantic movement. Now, the, the Inklings may have responded against the notion of the lonely Romantic genius and wanted to be writers in community, and that's fine. But I think there are certain Romantic tropes, as it were, to which they respond richly. And one of them is precisely the fragment, the suggestive mm -hmm. fragment. Um, I mean, perhaps classically the greatest suggestive fragment is Kubla Khan. So Coleridge, you know, all about finding in Alf the sacred river and the source. And it is a poem about creative writing. It's a poem about the imaginative spirit. Yeah. And he says, oh, uh, you know, a person from Paul Ark called and I didn't finish it, you know, and it's kind of stopping. But then of course, generations of critics have said, but it's perfect, you know. Perfect. <laughs> that we have. Well, frame. Well, That's so I, I think about the, I mean, I was hugely excited to discover that this, that what a substantial fragment the fall of Arthur was. And I read it with great joy, not only, you know, the amazing picture of Guinevere and the strikingly modern sort of um, kind of Nietzschean Superman version of Mordred, um, but, um, but also the, the sheer brilliance of the poetry, the prosody. But what it inspired me, in fact, one of the reasons why I got involved in this, this, this whole project and was excited by it, you know, to begin with, apart from excited by the, the publication of The Fall of Arthur, was that I've been thinking myself creatively about the whole question of how to handle the Arthuriad, of what to do with this material, and whether, you know, perhaps, you know, in my retirement and my dotage, I might have a go at it myself. And, um, you know, you do it differently. Everybody does it differently. You know, T.H. White does one thing and, and Lewis. Does. And of course, we, one of the people who doesn't get looking here, but who handles the material in another way as a high modernist is David Jones. And I've been interested to see how David Jones has, in fact, written about and critiqued Charles Williams, I discovered. So, um, I hope that this book will actually not so much lead to us imaginarily finishing unfinished poems of talking. Right but that it will generate a desire in people to work creatively with this material as well as critically. I wouldn't want the critical apparatus to overlay the sense that these stories are themselves immensely suggestive and generative stories, which need to be reimagined in every generation.
and we need you know the rising i mean i'm sure there are people listening to this you know and out there who probably got you know scribbled at the back of a drawer something something that they want to do with an art theory and episode and i would say if this book tells you anything it tells you go for it right yeah well i think uh, i think if uh put my oar in i guess the I think it's important that a lot of these are incomplete. Uh, Williams finished a couple books of poems in one of his novels and, and Lewis finished a novel, but they, they each left a lot behind as well. I think it's, I think it testifies to the, and Lewis, his first prose piece was an Arthurian tale. Yeah. The, the quest of Blaris is a, um, an incomplete, maybe it's about a third done. It's difficult to know. It starts to wander a bit. Um, and I'm not sure he knew where it was going to go. And and I think it's really difficult. So it's really easy for us to do a retelling of a source text. I mean, if we're, if we're good with the pen, we sit down and we can write, you know, transform it for a new generation. I don't think that's terribly difficult to do an adaptation. I think it's really difficult to, to allow a whole world of stories to infiltrate our own world without losing the world that exists outside of the writing studio. Uh, and then to, to to take and to move out into the world outside the studio with that story. And I think we see uh, Lewis's Lancelot poem, you know, a bunch of Charles uh, Williams poems don't fit fit as well or haven't been published till later, uh, Tolkien's Fall of Arthur. I think they're the, the testimony of that difficulty of trying to kind of move that out into the world, but then also being dissatisfied with pieces that that didn't do what it was, which is their Arthur. It's not Mallory's or, you know, um, Tennyson's, but but their own pieces. And I th I think that's, I, I, I appreciate that actually, because uh, there's a lot of work that, that um, means to say something about the world that's not terribly artistic uh, or terribly world engaging today, so. That dissatisfaction that you mentioned ties to another super central, absolutely important romantic theme. So the idea of dissatisfaction, the idea of the fragment, is this sense of Sehnsucht or longing that pulses through all of these works. And we haven't mentioned that yet, but that, I think that might be something that gives the unique flavor to the mm. Inklings Arthurian works, that it's it's never enough. There's always a longing for something more. There's this yearning for magical islands in the West. But if you get to the islands in the West, they don't satisfy because you really want something beyond this world that nothing in this world can satisfy. And the whole Arthurian Logres project, the whole project of creating this kingdom that's founded on justice um, rather than on force, it's all about trying to create a kind of otherworldly kingdom on earth. And that project is always going to fail, but that's part of its beauty is it's mm -hmm. ephemeral and it's passing nature. It doesn't Lewis, last. Lewis and that, beautifully, I think in his idea of the haunting where he, he's got a great passage in the idea of strength where he says, Britain, as it were, modern Britain, as we know in the shots, is always haunted by Logres. Right. This, this unfinished story, this, this kingdom that should have, something should have happened the grail should have been achieved but it wasn't i mean the very arthurians itself is about a moment that was just missed yeah in a sense and lewis has this thing that we're haunted by it that you know just when we're at our most bleak and reductive and, and sort of utilitarian suddenly our imaginations are stirred again by what by by this moment of avalon this moment of the grail that somehow comes back and um I think I think that he's really onto something there. That one of the things about this kind of literature 
is not that it satisfies, but that it reminds us of our dissatisfactions, that it rekindles mm. our sense of the of longing and our dissatisfaction with things as they are now. Yeah, and everybody pulls the sword or the stone. Every writer does so. Like we're all messianically bound. I think the question of finishing the tale is a lot more, a lot more difficult than pulling the sword or the stone. I mean, honestly, <laughs> if I can, if I could wreck the whole thing for us, I mean, like, you know, it's a fail. It's a failed project, I guess. The the Arthuriad, right? In, in the sense of of you know, we have an adventure and we go. So I mean, this is what makes Lord of the Rings an interesting anti Grail story, right? Is the the releasing instead of the the taking up of something is that you can release yeah. the you can release you know magic ring uh, you know that only takes you know a whole world to make it happen right but what does it take to actually you know find and take up the grail that takes more than one world uh, and so uh, I think that's kind of a neat uh, I I like your link there Malcolm yeah both uh, both Richard Rowland and David uh, Beckman in the comments are uh, thinking about Arthur's return you know as Richard says, you know, that 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 longing that we're talking about is is at the heart of the epitaph, right? You know, that that you right. know, even exactly, exactly, yeah. That and that's such a you can see that that element uh, of 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 longing of anticipation, really speaking, uh, to the inklings, right? And and I say the sooner the better. Yeah. Um, that's <laughs> Yeah, yeah, very good. Well, we're we're just about to the end of our time here, but of course we have one one last super important question. Serena, where can people get a copy of this fine book if they do not yet have one, which is practically inexcusable, but it will be fine so long as that is remedied as swiftly as possible. Well, they should be able to get a copy wherever books are sold. <laughs> it's on barnesandnoble.com. It's on some of the smaller sellers, Abe books and so forth. You can walk into your local bookstore with the ISBN and they can order you a copy um, if it's not in stock. Um, I'll just tell a few of you privately that I still have a few review copies available. So if you have a connection with a fairly major journal that could review it, then just send me a private message. Um, you know, I've got all the major Inklings and Arthurian journals covered, but if you have another one, um, then let me know. And it's right. only like Those 10 bucks on Amazon for Kindle, right? Like, oh, yeah, I don't know. It's what... 9 for yeah, Kindle. Um, it was also an Amazon number one new release for three weeks in several categories, which is really exciting. Please, everyone, you could really help us out, too, um, by writing a review on Amazon or Goodreads, or at least just leaving a rating and then just sharing on social media about the book. That would be really helpful. Excellent. Absolutely. Very good. Well, I'd like to thank our guests again for joining us today. This has been a really fun discussion, and I certainly hope that uh, you know this has helped to fuel people's appetite for this book and to stimulate, as we were just finishing talking about, to stimulate some of the work, both creative and critical. That uh, you know, it would be really great to see uh, come from this. To to see this be not, of course, as we were discussing at the beginning, one could hardly call this book the beginning of a conversation, right? It would be be deeply ironic to 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 do that um but the but it but just thinking of the ways in which this book is really continuing and 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 moving this conversation on and and i know that i look forward to seeing how that conversation will be continued and taken up uh uh by people as we move forward in the future so Thanks again for joining us uh, to our to our guests and also, of course, to our attendees. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you at another future Signum Symposium. Thanks, everybody.
Thank Bye. you. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. We'll see you, folks. If you enjoyed this seminar, please consider making a small donation to Signum University. Your gift will help us continue to make the seminar series and other great content available for free to the public. Just go to signumuniversity.org slash fund slash donate slash seminars. Thanks!